Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 9. I'm sorry to say we're actually going to finish verses 1 through 11 this morning. I know we've hurried through. Sometimes you got to do it. How do you feel when you read the newspaper and or watch the news on TV and you kind of just see pretty much every single thing is negative, bad, corrupt, sinful? Do you kind of just get kind of angry inside when you see people breaking the law and getting away with it? And does it kind of grieve you to just see the moral decay of our country and our world and just how, you know, our country is working tirelessly to eliminate God and eliminate morals and eliminate the family? And does it bother you when you read the news and the only details which an article has are some details which serve some unspoken but obvious agenda to attack a person, to support a party, to, you know, make a statement, not report the news, but to use the news as a tool to manipulate you? Does your soul ever feel like righteous lots whose soul was tormented while living in Sodom and Gomorrah because of the immorality and wickedness around him? When you look at our society and you realize that fornication and adultery and homosexuality are normal and prevalent and people don't even think a thing about people engaging that kind of thing. And as a matter of fact, if you're a person who doesn't engage in those activities and who speaks out against them you are stupid there's something wrong with you what is wrong with you get into the modern age and what about alcohol abuse and drug abuse especially the abuse prescribed by psychiatrists who are trying to replace parenting And self-control and discipline with drugs. Does that bother you? Do you hate sin? I think most of us have felt that way. When you look at the world and you see all of that, does it make you want to hide? Does it make you want to move to Kamii, Idaho? (laughs) You don't know where that is, do you? That's the whole point. You know, we'll just buy a piece of property. We'll just get up there on the mountains, you know, build our little fortress and just hunker down until death of the second coming. A lot of people do that. Run. Is that the solution? Or does it make you want to do something about it? You don't know what, but you got to do something. So what is the answer to this? Do we need more government? Do we need more laws? More taxes to pay for more inept programs? More corrupt politicians? Is the solution the propagation of more churches who entertain people, make them feel good, do drama? people what they want to hear pep them up is that the solution 
More churches like that, are, oh, everybody's going to feel good and the whole country is going to be transformed by churches who are, you know, catering to the felt needs of the unregenerate populace. A.W. Tozer has rightly said, quote, a widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be a moral tragedy from which we would not recover in a hundred years, end quote. And he wrote that a long time ago. J.C. Ryle and his work, Christian Leaders of the Last Century, which from our perspective would be two centuries ago, speaking of the 1700s in England, describes what it was like one generation after the Puritans had their heyday. The Puritan era was at its heyday between about, you know, 1620 and 1685. Were just these incredible godly men who were just solid theologians and preachers and livers of the truth. Transformed society. It was it was the on the heels of the Reformation, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and then it came into England and the Puritans and the Westminster Confession and just all of these great godly men had transformed society. And let's then, a hundred years after that, England was characterized by corruption, bribery, management in mismanagement in high places, drunkenness, obsession with entertainment, gambling. Ryle says purity was an exception, a time when there were many laws. But most were ignored because there was no police. Lawlessness ruled the day. Ralph, speaking of the state of the church, said, quote, The Church of England existed in those days with her admirable articles, her time-honored liturgy, her parochial system, her Sunday services, and her 10,000 clergy. The nonconformist body existed with its hardly won liberty and its free pulpit. They existed, but they would hardly be said to have lived. They did nothing. They were sound asleep, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, natural theology, that's the talk of science and things in nature, without a distinctive doctrine of Christianity, cold morality or barren orthodoxy formed the stable teaching both in the church and the chapel. He said the land was deluged with infidelity and skepticism. The prince of this world made good use of his opportunity. His agents were active and zealous in promulgating every kind of strange blasphemous opinion. End quote. He tells of the then celebrated lawyer Blackstone, quote, who had the curiosity early in the reign of George III to go from church to church to hear every clergyman of note in London. He says that he did not hear a single discourse which had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero. And that it would have been impossible for him to discover from what he heard whether the preacher were a follower of Confucius, of Muhammad, or of Christ. End quote. And people, this is less than a hundred years after the heyday of some of the most godly preachers and people who have ever lived. And everybody knows the axiom that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat the same mistakes. Our country started out glorious. The Puritans who were kicked out of their pulpits there came over here. 
We have a, a declaration, a constitution based on the word of God, a law system based on the Bible. We had so many blessings early on. The Bible was read and taught in every public school. Presidents and statements openly acknowledged God and the Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, who was the sovereign judge of all. In virtually every public arena. And here we are today, right where England was in the 1700s. And yet, get this. When England was at its low, a hundred years after that, it was having a heyday. Churches had sprung up that were preaching the word. Evangelism was rampant. Missionaries were being sent out. Society was radically transformed. Why? Why was that? What was the solution? What was the remedy? Rael says it was a small group of preachers who decided to start preaching the word and evangelizing the lost. And it was these preachers who, in training their congregations, created an army of people who had a passion for the lost and sound doctrine and the things of God. And those people went out, lived their lives, lived for Christ, and changed the whole nation. Biblical preaching, making disciples, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded was the solution for England. And it's the solution to our nation as well. And it must start with you and me and Calvary Bible Church. And as we've been working through Luke 9, 1 through 11, we have looked at this text from the perspective of signs and wonders as Jesus has sent his disciples out for the first time on their own, giving them power to cast out demons and heal all manner of disease and sickness. And the question always arises, can we do that today? So we answered that question. Then we started looking at the text from really the big picture of why Luke includes it here, that this is Jesus sending out his disciples for the first time. And when we look at the text, we see that embedded in it are eight great principles for discipleship that we can learn from Jesus that we need to apply to our own life, to our own discipleship relationships, to our own church. You know, many know the Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. You could even go to a liberal church, and most people know that. The Great Commission is kind of really standard if you've been in the church for a while. But how are we supposed to go about doing discipleship today? You you look at Jesus and this text. I mean, these guys left everything. They followed him. They're wandering around the country. They're living nomadic lives. He's giving them supernatural powers to do these miracles. You know, you can look at this and go, well, Jack, I see what's happening here. But Jesus isn't around. He's not doing miracles. I don't have those powers. You know, I'm not living a nomadic life. How do I go about doing discipleship? And so that's what we're learning from this text. And so if you have your Bible, look at Luke 9 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. 
And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man of, about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. The crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So we've already covered the first five principles. Let me just review them quickly and then we'll get to the last three. The first was call your disciples to engage in ministry. This is kind of a no brainer. If you're going to do ministry, you got to do ministry. And so as part of a disciple-er, you call people to engage in ministry. The reason you are saved, the reason you have been given spiritual gifts is for the edification of the church and the evangelization of the lost. And every Christian needs to be engaged in ministry. Secondly, we learn that you need to train your disciples through instruction and example. We see this, for instance, in verse 3 through 5. In verse 3 through 5, Jesus instructs the disciples concerning what to do, what to bring, what not to bring, and how to respond as they go about doing ministry. You need to do this with your disciples. Third, you need to give your disciples opportunities, empower them to serve. You know, if it's in your power and you're over a ministry and you're discipling somebody, then let them do it. Let them do it. Jesus is giving them, they have followed him for quite some time. Yes, they've been kind of backseat ministers. Jesus is preaching the gospel. People are coming to the Lord. People are repenting of their sins. And sure, they're kind of like the ministry help team along with a great other crowd of women and other men, as we have learned. But now he's giving them an opportunity to do it on their own by themselves. Four, send your disciples out teaching them to trust God. No ministry gives glory to God unless those doing the ministry are trusting in the Lord. Yes, God gives us the grace to minister on his behalf, that he never calls us to do anything that he does not give us the grace to accomplish. But it is also incumbent upon any every believer to constantly trust in the Lord, to call upon the Lord, to ask him for help, to rely upon him in ministry. And as you are discipling people, you need to teach them to constantly rely on the resources that God supplies. Five, you must teach your disciples to expect and respond properly to rejection and persecution. We saw this in the text in verses 5 and 7 through 9. Jesus says, you know, you may have to shake the dust off your feet. And then Luke, we learned, actually takes a historical episode, which hasn't even happened at this point in Jesus' ministry, and 
takes it because he's writing from after the fact and actually inserts it as if it was happening at that time. And the reason he does that is to let us know that Herod chopped off John the Baptist's head for doing what he's calling his disciples to do. It was a great illustration of what the disciples were being sent out into. Of course, in the parallel text in Matthew 10, we learn Jesus goes through this big monologue, which Luke leaves out and starts it off by saying, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so what we see here is these principles from Jesus' life, and we can look at this, see him working with his disciples, and we can do the same thing that Jesus did, and we should. I mean, we can't take people and give them powers to cast out demons and heal every manner of disease and sickness, but these other principles that we've already looked at and the ones that we, we are going to look at this morning are principles we can all apply. They're, that's why they're in the text. So that we can do them. So that is where we left off. And these last principles every believer needs to understand and apply so the church can be in function like God intends it to be in function for his glory. So this is the sixth one, and that is encourage your disciples to embrace the work of the ministry. Verse 6. And you might think to yourself, well, Jack, that sounds very similar to calling your disciples to engage in ministry or the third principle, giving your disciples opportunities to serve, but it's not. Here, the two operative terms I want you to consider are embrace and work. Look at verse six, where we read departing. They began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They did it. They went after it. They didn't say, whoa, this is gnarly. Jesus has given us powers. He's he's telling us to actually go out on our own. Let's sit around and talk about it. Write a book about it. And think about it. They went after it, man. They got up. They went into every city and did exactly what Jesus said. You know, a person can be gifted. They can be called. They can be trained. They can be given opportunities and then just dabble in ministry. You know, they give the crumbs of their life to God. The lion's share of their life, they give to pleasures and entertainment and worldly pursuits and the acquisition of things that will be burned up. And then the vulture share, they give to God. But these disciples, they went for it. They went into every city. They preached the gospel. They healed everybody. You know, many people serve, but few embrace the ministry. Few look at their lives as, I And the minister of Jesus Christ, a soldier of Christ, I serve Jesus, not just at church, not just in Sunday school, but when I'm out, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you're at the store or buying groceries or, you know, whether you're a businessman or a housewife or the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. You can be a servant of Christ wherever you are. You are to be a servant of Christ wherever you are. 
You are to live for Christ, for his glory. And people who embrace the ministry like this, they can't do enough for Christ. They know they owe Christ an infinite debt they could never repay. They know they will never regret ever serving him or ever sacrificing anything for him. They just go home at night just marveling that God has used me, a wretched sinner. I have the privilege of serving the God of all creation, me. Amazing. But not only should every disciple embrace the ministry, they need to embrace the labor, the work, the hard work of the ministry. Embracing the ministry is fine, but you don't want to produce disciples that say, yeah, you know, I'll do the ministry, but I don't want to do anything hard. You know, many serve impulsively. They come to church and somebody says, hey, could you help me up? Sure. And you know what? It's good. You know, they help move some chairs. They help do something, collect the offering or whatever. The task is small. The sacrifice low. I mean, it's all good and fine. But you go home and say, let me look at your calendar. Let me see where you are planning to engage in the work of the ministry. And many of those calendars you will seek and not find anything. They don't want to work. They don't want to plan to serve God. They don't want to commit to labor. They just throw crumbs to God. Recently, I was contacted by the compass group. That's their singles ministry. And they offered to come to my house and, you know, help me with some project. So I said, hey, you know, I'm Mr. Fix-It. And the only project I have is killer hard. I said, digging in hard pan rocky soil. That's it. And you don't have to do it. You know, it's nasty. I understand. You know, I mean, you could do other things. Go serve other people. They said, no, no, we want to come over on this particular Saturday. The problem is it was the Saturday of the men's breakfast. So someone to go to that. And so they showed up at 11. They said they were going to show up at 1130. But the problem is the forecast was low hundreds. <laughs> and so I tried to give them every out. You know, you don't have to come. It's okay. You know, I, you know, I'll get it done in the morning piece by piece. You know, that's instead of going to the gym, I dig dirt. And so. I thought, you know, you guys don't have to know, no, we're coming. And five guys showed up and dug in the hot sun for three and a half hours. They were sweating so profusely. It looked like somebody shot them with a hose. (laughs) These men planned to do ministry. They embraced the ministry. They sacrificed their Saturday to serve me. And I know about any other thing in the world would have been more fun than that. I mean, I was out there. I know. And don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say, you know, embracing the ministry means coming over to my house and serve me. (laughs) The dirt's all dug. Sorry. But I want to see this as an example of planning to serve others. A good example of, of intentionally thinking, no, My life is going to be bent on serving others. So I am going to plan on doing this. 
Remember that your service to others in the body of Christ is ultimately service to Jesus Christ. It should be part of your life. You should want to embrace and work hard in ministry. The disciples were being sent out into hostile territory and they did it and they did it gladly. And we saw last time just how scary Jesus made it sound. And yes, they were persecuted. And yes, they were abused at times. And yes, they had to shake the dust off their feet. And yet they still did it. Why? Well, it's not because they received a bunch of accolades and encouragement from the people that hated their guts because they didn't want to hear it. It's because they love the Lord. That's why. Because they knew that by serving these people, they were serving Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, 40, when he's talking to uh, about the judgment of the sheep and the goats? Remember what he says to the sheep? To the least that you did it, to the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to what? To me. To the degree that you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. You see, people who embrace the work of the ministry do it for the love of the Lord. Regardless of what happens, they're not looking for a way out. They're not looking to, you know, I need to take a break for a couple years. And, you know, I did that three years ago and, you know, let other people do it. They love the Lord. They love serving the Lord. They embrace the work. And you know what? You need to be among them. Every Christian needs to be among them. There are those in this body who labor relentlessly and tirelessly. And you know what? You don't even know who they are. And you know what? They don't want you to know who they are. These are the large muscles in the body of Christ. And they serve. They're not looking for attention. They're not looking for accolades. They don't need anybody to say, well, way to go, Joe. They're serving because they love Jesus. And they have fixed in their heart to serve him. And they're serving you and you benefit from it. And you probably don't even know who they are. Paul in first Timothy chapter four, as he speaks about the excellent minister. I know we went through this not too long ago, about four years ago. But let me remind you of some of the things he describes is characteristic of the excellent minister. He, he tells Timothy These things because Timothy is to be an example for others in the church to follow. And he says, you need to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. He says, you need to be constantly nourished up on sound doctrine. You need to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You need to labor. You need to strive. You need to agonize in doing the ministry. You need to be commanding and teaching and be an example. You need to give yourself to biblical teaching and preaching and not neglect your spiritual gift. You need to be absorbed in these things. You need to take pains with these things. You need to persevere in these things. And you remember why? Do you remember the reason he gives at the end of the big list in verse 16? He says, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, not only for yourself, but for those who hear you. That is what changes the world. The gospel preached and lived. Disciple makers teaching other people to observe all that Jesus commanded, which is to make disciples and to teach everybody all that Jesus commanded. 
I marvel that there are so many professing Christians who do not want to serve Christ here on earth, but think that they will be in heaven serving him. Listen, if you don't want to serve him here, you aren't going to want to serve him there. As a matter of fact, you won't serve him there because you won't be there. You remember what we learned in Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why are you marching in Satan's ranks and claiming to be my follower? There's a problem there. Now, if this is you, I caution you. Do not think that by doing, you're going to get into heaven. You, you are not. You cannot Okay, I'm going to start teaching the children's ministry. I'm going to start handing out bulletins and then I'll feel like I'm going to heaven. No, no, no. Do not let your conviction of sin drive you to serve out of fear or out of guilt or out of compulsion. If you are a professing believer who does not like to serve, your lack of service is an indication of a soul problem, a heart problem. Our relationship with Jesus problem. It may be you don't know Christ. And you just think you do or say you do. And granted, you might know Christ and maybe you're a young believer or maybe you're caught up in some circumstance that is preventing you from being involved in ministry. In the local church. But listen, if you look back at your life and you realize that you've never served. That you've never embraced the hard work of the ministry. The scriptures diagnose you as somebody who does not know the Lord, who does not love Christ. I'm not trying to be harsh here. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. And the remedy for your reluctance to embrace the work of the ministry is not to start serving out of guilt and compulsion with a complaining, grumbling, I'll do it. Spirit, the solution is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the solution. It is to turn from your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts and receive the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was resurrected for your justification to become a new creature so that old things pass away And all things become new. Then, then you have this nagging within you. You have the Holy Spirit pecking at your mind. Serve, 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 serve. And finally it's like, I'm getting involved. I can't help getting involved. And every time I'm not serving, I've got to serve. And if you aren't, you want to. And if you are, you wish you could do more. That is what the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a believer. And if you're not serving, if you have a pattern of not serving, do not become a Pharisee. Do not think, well, okay, um, uh, I'm going to start serving so that my conscience is clear. Wrong motive. I'm going to start serving so that others will see me serve. Wrong motive. I'm going to serve because it will give me accolades and people look at me as a moral person. Wrong motive. The church doesn't need any more Pharisees. We don't need any more moral people going through the motions for the wrong reasons. The church needs brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ who love him. Who love him. Who love him more than anything else and are more than happy and willing to serve him.
And it may be that when you look back on your life, you remember a time when you used to be involved in ministry. You used to be entrenched in ministry. You look back and say, man, there was a time in my life, man, ministry was just my life. But man, what has happened to me? Ministry is now zero in my life. What happened? Well, Satan is a wily foe. And man, he knows how to just get you off course. He knows he can't unsave you. And so if he knows he can't unsave you, then what he wants to do is render you ineffective. He wants to deceive you. He wants to lead you astray. He wants to get you off the mark so that pretty soon you are not even following Christ. You're like a man who stands next to the road, looks up and sees this mountain, but there's this huge forest in between you and that mountain, and you're determined to just go straight up that thing and look out at the sights. And so all of a sudden you start marching through the forest, and the clouds come over, and you kind of can't tell which direction the sun is, and there's no shadows, and pretty soon you have this rude awakening. You're back where you started. You're completely turned around. You're walking towards your car. It happens. It happens. And some of you are going, I know that person. Well, it not only happens in the forest. It happens in the church. Satan will use hobbies, jobs, spouses, children, and a million other things to first get you to cut back a bit. Then to cut back a bit more. And then to take a small sabbatical and a larger sabbatical. And pretty soon you look back and your service to the Lord is history. Not present reality. And if that is you, you need to get at your bearings. Straighten out your priorities. Get into the compass of God's word. Remind yourself of what God wants you to be doing Confess those sins that have caused you to deviate from the straight and narrow and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and then get back on the path with the compass in hand and keep looking at it so you don't deviate. Go home this week. Spend time with the Lord. Praise him for saving you. Praise him for giving you gifts. Praise him for giving you life. And get your bearings back because you need to be serving. Seven. Not only to embrace the hard work of the ministry, you need to get and give feedback from those you disciple after you send them out to minister. Look at the first part of verse 10, where we read, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. So they went out from village to village, teaching, healing everywhere, and then they reported back. They gave an account. You need to do the same thing. You know, you don't just get a disciple and say, hey, so you want to serve in the children's ministry, huh? Okay, here you go. Here's 32 years old. Get them. You know, uh, no, that's not what happens. You, you have to train people. If you wanted, let's say, to serve in the children's ministry, you'd call up Brock and say, yeah, I'm thinking of maybe getting involved in the, the, the children's ministry. And he would say, all right, well, let's talk about it. And, you know, you have to jump through all these hoops and... You finally get approved. And what happens? Well, you show up and somebody else is teaching. You're just observing. You're just learning. You're watching. You know, huge sacrifice. I'm watching. 
And you see how the teacher who is experienced is teaching a class and controlling the children and going through the motions. And you look at that and you think, man, praise God, this is cool. And you ask questions, you grow in wisdom and knowledge. And then finally it becomes your turn. And they say, you know what? Let's put you in. Okay. Can you help me? Sure, sure. I'll help you go through the lesson. All right. You give them an opportunity. And then afterwards you say, okay, what, how'd you think you did? You give them feedback. You talk. You give them a few pointers and pretty soon they're teaching the class on their own and pretty soon they're training the next guy coming along or the next gal. I do this in preaching all the time. You know, it amazes me. Some seminary students think that because they've read two books on preaching, they're, they're experts and you can't teach them, teach them anything. It's like trying to pound water into granite. They're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've read the book. Um, <laughs> And they, they know it, but you know what? You say, okay, time to get out there and preach. And they preach and say, now watch your video. They're suicidal. (laughs) And they become extremely teachable. So like, man, you need to help me. I was bad. And you know what? I don't say, well, here's the 75 things you did wrong. I just say, you know what? You did this right. You did this right. This is pretty good. And just, you know, work on these one or two things. And you bring them along piece by piece. You give them feedback. You encourage them. That's what it means to disciple somebody. Discipling somebody isn't getting together for a Bible study and saying, yeah, let's talk about what we could be doing. Yeah, it includes that. And then it's let's get doing. Let you be doing and I'll watch you and then we'll talk about it and I'll help you do better. So that's what you need to do. So Jesus, we see, sends his disciples out. They do their thing and then they give an account. Eight, model for your disciples what you are teaching them to do. Look at the middle of verse 10. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now keep in mind that before this time, they've been traveling with Jesus, nomads. (laughs) You know, they've left all to follow Jesus. So the disciples have already embraced the ministry with passion and conviction. They're doing the hard work. And even though they haven't been sent out on their own just one time, they still have been laboring as they are kind of Jesus's, you know, cleanup crew as he's going through these cities and ministering to people along with the other women and men who are following. Now imagine you're among them and you're roaming around the country. You've left your home. Sometimes you're sleeping in the dirt and under trees and bushes. And sometimes you're sleeping in different people's houses on their floors and stacked up like cord wood in their, you know, central room or whatever. I mean, you're just a nomad. That's, you know, that can get tiring. And Jesus finally says, okay. And he gets you together and you're all alone with Jesus. He's by himself. He says, come on, guys, let's go to Bethsaida. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, praise God. I get to have a day off. Finally. You know, it's not that I, the ministry just hasn't been super thrilling. And it's just great seeing souls saved and the miracles. I mean, but man, just to have a couple days to just chill and just relax and recover. And you know what? We get to go to Bethsaida. The home of Andrew and James and Peter. And maybe you are Andrew and James and Peter. And you're thinking, oh, great. We get Aunt Martha's cooking, you know. And we're going to sleep in a bed. 
And man, our relatives and our friends, they're going to treat us like royalty. And this is going to be great. Look at verse 11. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Labor always follows those who are servants of Christ. And it never goes away. It never goes away. You know, if I go on vacation, where I know a lot of Christians, vacation becomes a sustained counseling session for me. That's it. You know, if I go up to Idaho or, you know, I help plant these churches, I know these Christians, I just meet with people and just talk to them about all their ministry problems all week long. And afterwards I think, oh man, I can't wait back to get to Calvary. Deal with the problems there. And you know what? Did Jesus complain? Did he grumble because they just wouldn't leave him alone? Did he get angry because they bothered him during, you know, his intended respite? No, no. The text says he welcomed them. He said, yeah, come on, I'll heal you. And he kept preaching and he just got right back into the labor Most people, you know, have jobs and you have these defined hours when you go to work and you come home from work. And when it's your day off, it's great, isn't it? It's like, oh, praise God, tomorrow off. And you know, what if you had worked for three weeks straight and your boss calls you up and says, you know, I know you've been work, you haven't had a day off in three weeks, but I need you to come in. What are you thinking? Right, pal. Listen, I got a life. Well... Just to let you know, when you're a Christian, you don't ever get a day off. Ever. You don't get to quit being a Christian when you leave church on Sunday. You don't get to stop acting godly. You don't get to stop walking in the spirit. You don't get to stop sharing the gospel. You're just a Christian, a soldier, an active duty everywhere you go, all the time, 24 hours on call. I mean, you know, somebody calls you up in the middle of the night. I'm having a crisis. And say, listen, I'm sleeping. Uh, Tomorrow I'm planning on mowing the lawn. Can I call you in a day or two? No, you help them out. Mark 10, 45 sums up Jesus' life that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. That was his example. And so even though Jesus is sending his disciples out, he's not saying, finally, I got him trained. I can kick back. He's still modeling for them what it means to serve others. All Christians need to lay their life on the altar of sacrifice to God and be those living sacrifices that Paul speaks about in Romans 12, which are holy and acceptable to God because this is our spiritual service of worship. Listen, we have repeated the mistake of England after the English Reformation and we need to repeat the cure. And the way we repeat the cure is to preach the word, teach the word, and live the word. To have you be an army of people who go out into the world and speak the truth, speak out against sin, call sinners to repentance, teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. All of us 
need to grow and excel in the things that we have learned from Jesus's example of discipleship in this text. And we all need to be a church of hardworking, laboring, self-sacrificing servants of Jesus because that's what it means to be a Christian. So when you leave here today, remember to teach your disciples to embrace the work of the ministry. Train your disciples by giving them feedback and encouragement and model and be an example of what it means to be an excellent servant of Jesus Christ because this is what gives glory to God. This is how we love God. This is what we were saved for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are patient with us, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Father, all of us need to improve in just our devotion to you, our service to you. We could be better lights. We could be better servants. We could give more to you, but we can never give as much as you deserve. Father, I pray for those here who might not know you, those who have never repented of their sins, have never been transformed from the inside out, have never been created into new creatures in Christ. I pray that right now they would confess their sins, repent, turn from their lifestyle of selfishness to submission and obedience to the Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And Father, for the rest of us who do know you, May we look at our life and see if we're not walking in the wrong direction. That we have our bearings, that our eyes are in the compass of your book, and that we're headed towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, help us all to be this way, and ever increasingly so, that we might be the spark that lights the fuse, which transforms Southern California the whole West Coast, and then our nation. Father, help us to be this way for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.